this is the second installment of the Bookish at Bethel podcast, and I am Anne-Marie Koistra from the History Department, here with Carrie Peffley from the Philosophy Department. And we are going to be talking with Dr. Marion Larson, who is in the English Department, and another humanities professor about the Bacchae, but as you'll hear, a number of other subjects as well. So uh, enjoy your listen. So we're joined today by Professor Marion Larson in the English Department and one of our humanities professors. Hello, happy to be with you. Yeah, welcome, Marion. Thanks. Today, we're going to, well, we just heard a lecture by Dr. Wayne Rosa on Greek art. And the students over the weekend are going to start reading Plato's Apology, and then we'll start reading some Euripides later on next week. Um, and so one of the questions we like to ask our guests each time is, why this particular text? Why the Bacchae? I was telling my students this Wednesday in our first seminar um, that we're all really nerdy, and I was delighted to see that they looked happy about that. I think they're delighted that we're excited by books. And so I wanted to begin by asking you why the Bacchae, why is it exciting to read or think about the Bacchae? Wow. I, I mean, I could give a whole bunch of answers to that one. That's um, what we're hoping, Marianne. And I was thinking, I like the fact that I just heard Wayne Rosa's lecture because one of the things he emphasized so much about uh, Greek art, especially Athenian Greek art, is uh, these ideals that you see in texts like Plato's Republic yeah. about the ways in which the aspects of who we are as humans ought to connect together, that we are physical beings, we are bodies, but we're also minds and we're also uh, emotions and wills. And uh, the the Doriferous, the spear bearer image that we'll be seeing at the Institute of Art in a couple of weeks uh, exemplifies that strong physical being who also has things under control and is poised. And one of the things I love about the Bacchae is, and then things fell apart. Yes. Yes. So we have, uh, I mean, I'll talk a little bit about the story itself since sure. uh, by, if anyone ever listens to this, they will have just read it or will be about to read it. Um, and so I, uh, we ha I guess I would say we kind of have three main characters. One is Dionysus, who uh -huh. is a god figure. He's part human and part god. And he was known to the Greeks as a god of letting go, a god of being open to things that maybe don't make sense. Just what student uh, life doesn't want you to exactly, do. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. A god of uh, transformation, a god of loss of control. And in fact, in this particular version of uh, his story, he shows up in town in disguise. And uh, even though one of the first people he talks to is uh, one of the other main characters, Pentheus, who is basically a teenager who recently has become the ruler of the city of Thebes, uh, in, quote, real life in the story, <laughs> Pentheus and Dionysus are cousins. Yeah. Their mothers were sisters. And Pentheus doesn't recognize his own cousin, partly because his cousin has grown up outside the city of Thebes, but also because Dionysus doesn't want Pentheus to recognize him. And then one of the other characters is Agave, who is the aunt. I feel like I'm talking about a soap opera, but <laughs> she is the aunt of Dionysus because her sister, uh, one of her sisters is Dionysus's mother. 
Um, and she is, uh, as one of the women of the city, she is driven, literally driven to madness and loss of control by Dionysus, who has that impact on all the women of the city. So back to Greek ideals and back to the Doriferous, really every single character in this story exemplifies humans, uh, girls gone wild, oh, those, yes. those spring drape, spring, spring break, uh, videos uh girls gone wild there's all these your mother's gone wild yes in this one even weirder yeah (laughs) even weirder and pentheus you know one of the things i like to talk about with my students is all of the unresolved questions that this play raises about what it means to be human Mm -hmm. and also about why bad things happen to humans so you see here um like, so what does it mean to be human? Does it mean learning to exhibit self-control and clear thinking, which Pentheus wants to do, but his desire to exert control seems to be part of what causes the problem in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of the experience that the women in the story go through is stuff that can't be explained intellectually that is out of control and are are they to be seen as cautionary figures certainly uh the fact that agave literally dismembers and beheads her son uh with her bare hands i'm pretty sure that's not to be seen not to be seen as a positive thing um so it seems that euripides is wanting to explore yeah it's possible to go too far in losing control but it also is possible to go too far in trying to retain rigid control. If you try to retain rigid control and only open yourself to the parts of human experience that can be explained or understood, you'll miss out on uh, religious experiences that may be an important part of what it means to be human. Um, the women in the story, uh, a lot of the details about the revels they engage in outside the city, um, I think at least part of that is it's meant to be ambiguous. It's meant to be both yeah. positive and a little bit scary. Uh, and so the whole question of why do bad things happen, do, does something bad happen to Pentheus because he tried too hard to retain control? Or do bad things happen because he didn't try hard enough to retain control? After all, he gave in to the temptation to leave the city and see what those ladies were up to. That's um, true. Yeah. Uh, also, what role do the gods play in uh, bad things happening? If Dionysus hadn't shown up and hadn't said during the very first few lines of the play, I'm angry at the people of the city of Thebes because they would not recognize my mother and they wouldn't, they don't, they're not willing to recognize me as a god. He's hell bent on revenge and uh, orchestrates the things that happen in the story. But at the same time, the things that happened in the story wouldn't happen the way they did had the humans not taken the made the choices they did. I mean, that's such classic Greek tragedy material, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's as if people had no opportunity for choice and they're just at the whim of the gods or fate. But at the same time, it's as if every single choice that humans make lead them right down a certain path and... And I think Euripides deliciously refuses to resolve that. Yeah, I I think that's true. Do you have a favorite character in this play, Marian? That's a good question. Um, 
I uh, or a favorite part, if not a favorite. Character. Well, I mean, one of my favorite parts is con- the conversation. One of the conversations between Dionysus and Pentheus. Oh yeah. When uh, Di- Di- when Pentheus, not realizing who Dionysus is, um, starts letting himself be more and more fascinated by and drawn to the idea that maybe he does want to go outside the city and yeah you take can a dress look at me what those as a lady that's right I, mm-hmm. i'm gonna i'm gonna go and join those ladies for curls. a while uh-huh sure so i love imagining what that scene might have looked like when uh-huh. it was acted out i love how pleased Dionysus mm-hmm. is with himself mm-hmm. for i mean it's clear that he's got this plan and he's just loving uh string Pentheus along and and tempting him. So I, I think that's probably my favorite scene. Well, and I, I really like that scene too, too, because here you've got uh, people from like, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years ago and the craftsmanship of that dialogue is so good because it's like one-liners back and forth and it's such a dance. And I when I imagine it, I almost see the transformation occurring in sort of this dance-like fashion, which... I, I love so nice. And I think we can see a lot of ourselves in Pentheus a bit in that scene, but elsewhere as well. I was reminded every time I read that scene of this friend that I had when I was a little kid whose parents didn't ever let him have any sugar, no candy, no soda, <laughs> no nothing. And so every time he came over to our house for a birthday party, he would just go crazy um and at the end of the party you would just see a pile of starburst wrappers and he was surrounded by all these candy wrappers at the end because his passions had finally sort of let go and he was allowed to do what he wanted to i think we see in that scene the little kid who's like oh i want to oh but i shouldn't oh i want to oh but i shouldn't Um, which just makes that such a great scene one thing i love about that story is when you said i'm reminded of i have this friend (laughs) And one of the things I was thinking about in this particular play, and I think about this often when I read Greek tragedy, is Greek tragedies are almost always set in the city of Thebes. Uh, even though the authors are Athenian and the plays were being performed in uh, an arena in the city of Athens. Um, and I think it's, it's a, maybe it's a little bit like, I have this friend. Yeah. And you know how you'll share a prayer concern or say, oh, I have this friend and really it's yourself. So, Carrie, I think deep down you were the starburst mm-hmm. eater. And so here the Athenians can – they can allow themselves to really judge the characters in the play because, oh, that's not us. That's people from – that. that's those misguided, mm-hmm. pathetic people in the city of Thebes um, even though maybe deep down I might allow myself mm-hmm. – internally to admit that there are some things about those characters that sound an awful lot like like we Athenians. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if you guys are struck by this, but I'm always so fascinated by how in the um, religion of the Greeks and even the Romans, because Romans borrow from the Greeks, the goddesses have so much power. And that is so interesting to me because it's – they're. Uh, I don't know what that means because I'm not a Greek scholar, but like what is going on with the, the, the goddesses having so much power? Now, in this case, it's Dionysus, but he's also achieving power through the gender bending, which is, I, I don't know, I think that's quite fascinating. So, mm-hmm. okay. 
Um, do you have a second question or should I ask my question? You can ask your question now. So if there's something you want students maybe to take away from your discussion with them about the play, I mean, are there things that you are hoping that like will stay on for them in their minds about the play? Uh, well, in thinking about this play, I, I was thinking about this play and uh, Thucydides' mm-hmm. History of the Peloponnesian War, since we will read those two texts back to back, and also because I'm going to introduce both of them. And I was thinking about both of those texts being written when it was clear to the people in Athens that their glory days were behind them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so if you are part of a society that that you have the right to feel quite a bit of pride about its accomplishments and uh, seeing that city as kind of a beacon on a hill and uh, thinking about the glory days, but feeling like, wow, those glory days are definitely behind us now. Um, and so I, I imagine that part of what the original audience members at, uh, watching the Bacchae being um, performed for the first time or people reading Thucydides or thinking about the events of the Peloponnesian War, the conflict between Athens and Sparta that ultimately turned out really badly for Athens. Um, and actually kind of for Sparta too, even though they won because both sides, uh, it led to so much loss of life that then it made the Greeks more vulnerable to being taken over later. But so in both cases, you have people kind of looking nostalgically back at the past and asking what went wrong? Is it too late to figure out how we can make things better? And as an American, um, I think to myself, huh, are our glory days behind us? Uh, where have we gone wrong? Are there lessons to be gained from either of these two texts? So I, th- it feels a, a very contemporary relevance to me, plus just sort of the whole big, what does it mean to be human yeah. kinds of questions. So I, I would say those are the main things that I hope students will take away from both of these texts. Yeah. That relates to another question that I have for you, which is sort of related to that idea that this is what we're seeing is not just what it is to be human, but what is it to be human at a moment of crisis when we're looking back on things that were and things that could have been and what should have been. Um, what And you connected it to where we are now in the United States. Are there any books or um, things that you can think about that sort of that reading Euripides, reading Thucydides makes you want to read this text as well. Um, thinking about crises in different time periods or what it is to be human in the moment of crisis. Uh, th- this is more of a Thucydides answer, but uh, b- because thinking about uh, great speeches like Pericles' funeral oration oh. right away gets me thinking about Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Um, and then thinking about America during uh, the Civil War, during both the lead up to the Civil War and during the Civil War, there was clearly uh, a, a moment of crisis. I know that um, I, I can't point to a particular text here, but I know that the uh, the founders of uh, the United States Often they spent a lot of time thinking about the history of the Greeks since Athens had been one of the earliest, uh, 
uh, I feel like I need to use air quotes around the word democracy mm -hmm. because so many people in that city weren't citizens, didn't have rights. But still, people in Athens were more free than in uh, really most other parts of the known world at the time. Um, but then looking at how Athens and, uh, Athens and Sparta and the other Greek city-states only were successful against the behemoth that was the Persian Empire because they were able to set aside their differences and join together. But then they allowed their differences and petty jealousies and all of that sort of thing to um, cause them to divide and fight against each other, which then weakened them to the outside world. And so the, the framers of our constitution had very similar questions. So those first American colonies were able to put their differences aside. And that's what allowed us in part, of course, we had help from France and others, but to defeat Britain. And then, then the question, can we maintain a democracy over a larger, mm -hmm. um, geographic, larger ge geographic area and also knowing the differences from state to state? So that's not a particular text. That's just a moment in our history mm -hmm. that connects a lot with uh, the time in which both Euripides and Thucydides were writing. Um, so it makes me want to think more about that time in history, which we'll be doing in Humanities 3. Right. Well, I was just going to say, you might not be exactly pointing them to a text, but you're actually pointing well, them the to federalist, yeah, anti -federalist, federalist, yeah, anti -federalist mm -hmm. papers. Well, the Federalist, yeah, Anti-Federalist Papers, which they will, uh, students in Humanities will read, and maybe now with Zest. Now, we always ask our guests one final question, and we will answer it too, won't we? Sure. So we always like to know what our guests are reading. What's on your nightstand? <laughs> uh oh, no guilty just, pleasure, Mary. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm laughing because uh, I I read so widely in terms of uh, highbrow, lowbrow, subject area, et cetera, et cetera. Um, read thirty one books over the summer. Um, and of course she did, right? Of yes. course I am. The uh, book that I'm reading right now okay. is uh, the, I don't remember the author's name, but the title of the book is Olive Kitteridge. Oh, yeah. And it is, uh, it feels like a novel, but it's a collection of linked short stories. And each one of the short stories had one of the characters in that short story, story is a woman named Olive Kitteridge. Mm. And in some of the stories, she's a very prominent character and some she's just a secondary character I'm about I think there are about a dozen stories in this volume and I'm partway through story number three okay so that's something I'm reading right now I read a couple of uh, Victorian novels over the summer one by uh, read Northanger Abbey by Jane oh, yeah. Austen which I'd never read before oh. and I also read North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell and I have to say yeah I uh, not so much. Leave it. I, Leave the Elizabeth Gaskell. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I. I, I Always good to know. Yeah. Um, one of my. Fa you didn't ask me this question, but I'll just talk more about <laughs> things that I've would. read recently. I, I think the book that I read over the summer that I enjoyed the most. Okay. Uh, is called Unmarriageable, and the oh, author's last name is Kamal. Uh -huh. She's Pakistani, uh -huh. and this is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice. Yep set in basically present-day Pakistan. And I am not, I like Jane Austen, I am not one of those 
people obsessed with books like Pride and Prejudice who has to read all of the fan fiction. I'm, I'm not that kind of person. Um, this was a retelling that caused me to actually like Pride and Prejudice more oh. and also got me thinking about how some of the themes and issues in that book are potentially relevant in various cultures and societies even today. The, there's a little PS that the author wrote um, to go along with that book. And she says when growing up, she was educated largely by reading British literature, people like Jane Austen. And she at first thought, why should I read British literature? I'm not British, I'm Pakistani. But then she realized, oh my gosh, my mother is Elizabeth Bennet. And I know all of the mothers I know are so obsessed with getting their daughters married. And, and so she just kind of went on and on about how relevant the book felt. Yeah. Um, the, the Mary Bennett in the story is the most observant Muslim in the family. Mm -hmm. And she debates whether or not she should start wearing hijab, mm -hmm. even though no one else in the family does. And I thought, I love that idea of, of yeah. Mary Bennett being like that. Uh, well, I'll just admit that I'm reading fan fiction right now. I'm reading the Veronica Mars second novel. So there, I'll just move along to Carrie then. Uh, I just, I'm in between. So I just finished rereading for probably the fourth or fifth time. Um, Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's Good Omens, yeah. because it's now being released as a mini series. So I thought I got saw the mini series. Didn't read the book. Okay, D oh, Dave read the book. The book is fabulous and always worth a reread. And I'm just about to start C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. So mm. I'm sort of shifting in very different direction mm. now. There That's go. a good one. Well, thank you, Dr. Larson. You're welcome. And as always, this is bookish at Bethel. <laughs>